Abortion in the Church, a document of Evangel Presbytery, Chapter 2, Abortion's Assault Upon God's Character and Law, Section 5, The Testimony of Scripture. Leaving all other arguments to the side, Scripture's authority is absolute. Scripture is not the word of man, but the word of God. We must submit our judgments concerning abortion to Scripture, where the duty of God's people to uphold His image placed in mankind is everywhere revealed, both implicitly and explicitly. Subheading Imago Dei We begin with the doctrine from which flows the clearest condemnation of abortion. God created man in His own image. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, quote, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Unquote. While all creation proclaims God's glory, the singularity of man is clearly stated to be that he alone, both male and female, bears the image of God. None of the rest of God's creatures bear his image and likeness, and although we may argue concerning the precise meaning of the word image and the word likeness, God doesn't leave us guessing as to its central significance in life and death matters. We find this significance stated in connection with Scripture's second mention of man bearing God's image and likeness in Genesis 9. Genesis 9, verses 1 to 7, quote, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant, only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it, unquote. Today, intellectuals, philosophers, and scientists, as well as some pastors and theologians, join together in assuring man that God is not his maker, and he need not fear returning to God for judgment following his death. They contradict 
Scripture's declaration, quote, it is he who hath made us and not we ourselves. Psalm 100, verse 3. From their fervid religious commitment to evolution, they declare the opposite, quote, it is not he who hath made us, but we ourselves, unquote. Abortion is the godless pagan's most terrible violation of nature, but this violation didn't start with abortion. It began with their denial that God created all things and that man as male and female is the crown of his creation. Consider the ways the text above from Genesis 9 teaches this truth and could not be more contrary to the spirit of our age. First, through Noah, God commands the race he named, quote, man, unquote, which is the Hebrew word Adam, which is also the name of the first man, Adam. First, through Noah, God commands the race he named man, Adam, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Not just be fruitful, but multiply, not just multiply, but fill the earth. This series of commands is then repeated at the end of the passage. Man is God's priority on his earth, and he goes on to make man's primacy more clear by declaring as a blessing that man will strike, quote, fear and be a, quote, terror to all other creatures. This is God's doing, and therefore it is good. Then he makes it even more clear by stating to man concerning all other creatures of his creation, quote, into your hand they are given, unquote. He adds that just like plants, animals are his gift to man for food, and that man is free to kill the creatures, whereas the creatures are forbidden to kill man, quote, Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast I will require it, unquote. Then not only animals are forbidden to kill man, but man himself is forbidden to kill man. Why? Because man is God's image bearer. Quote, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man, unquote. Flip this upside down. And we have the spirit of our age. Man's population must decline. Man must discipline his fecundity so that his numbers on the earth stop expanding and begin to contract. Rather than subduing the earth and its creatures, man must subdue his multiplication because his multiplication is unsustainable. Man must not rule creation. Such anthropocentric thinking is not creation-keeping, but creation-destroying. Contradicting God, the spirit of our age declares nature must not serve man, but man must serve nature. It declares there is no distinction in principle between man and animal. And thus the high priest of paganism, Princeton ethicist Peter Singer, writes, quote, my suggestion, then, is that we accord the fetus no higher moral status than we give to a non-human animal at a similar level of rationality, self-consciousness, awareness, capacity to feel, and so on. Because no fetus is a person, no fetus has the same claim to life as a person. Until a fetus has some capacity for conscious experience, an abortion terminates an existence that is 
considered as it is and not in terms of its potential, more like that of a plant than of a sentient animal like a dog or a cow, unquote footnote. We see how deeply this rebellion against God has infiltrated the church in any number of ways, but note particularly how many believers choose dogs and cats over children. Also note how many Christians today decline to eat the very animals God gave us to eat when he declared they, quote, shall be food for you, unquote. Of course, Christians who are vegans and vegetarians are eager to reassure other believers this is only their preference, not their principle. But note how meatlessness grows in the church even as Singer promotes his ethical anarchy. And then the entire world prattles on about cruelty to animals and free-range chickens. Five centuries ago, Calvin made this observation, which is still true. Quote, it is usual with hypocrites to reckon it a greater crime to kill a flea than to kill a man. Unquote footnote. Given this flipping of God's order of creation, it should surprise no one that we've also flipped capital punishment upside down. God commands that murderers be executed because murder destroys an image bearer. Today, though, man outlaws the execution of murderers. Today, it's murderers who awaken the compassion of men and women. Murderers are protected from execution while innocent babies are abandoned. The various green advocates of sustainability have repudiated God as the creator of the universe and have thus inevitably denied man's dignity as the crown of God's creation. These pagans have replaced the truths of God with the worship of creation, ushering back into Christendom the very idolatries and sexual perversions condemned by the Apostle Paul in the first chapter of his letter to the church in Rome. Refusing to honor and give thanks to their Creator, Pagans are turned over by God to the same unimaginable horrors that led God to command the sons of Israel to wipe out the Canaanites of the promised land. The image of God marks man's whole being, body and soul. Thus, to kill a man is to destroy God's image in that man, and thus openly defy the God who placed it there. To kill a man or woman, boy or girl, is wrong not only because of the harm done to the individual, but also because of the assault upon God. When one man murders another, it is an act of war against God. God declares the shedding of innocent blood pollutes the land and must be avenged by the execution of the manslayer. Numbers 35, verses 33 and 34, quote, So you shall not pollute the land in which you are, for blood pollutes the land, and no expiation can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live. Subheading, Your Hands Formed Me. God is creator and every child conceived reveals the purposeful and formative hand of God in his design. Footnote. Scientific advancement has done much to open up the astonishing nature of conception. 
Yet this ought not cause us to be materialists in our understanding, supposing that new life can be explained simply in terms of sperm, egg, DNA, mitosis, and so on. To be sure, our Lord shows us his glory through these means, but he also fashions each child in invisible, spiritual, and unfathomable ways. Ecclesiastes 11, verse 5, quote, Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things, unquote. Abortion is an assault on this secret and divine creation. It takes the greatest mystery in our lives, the creation of life, and destroys it. It takes one of God's greatest mercies to sinful man and mocks it. It is an extolling of death and thus a denial of God. God creates life. Satan hates and destroys life. Subheading, Woman as Life-Giver. The gift of procreation was only given to man when God created woman. As companion to Adam, she was to be a help, meet, in other words, fitting or suitable for him. And central to that suitability for man is woman's gift of bringing life into the world. When Adam named her Eve, meaning living one or life giver, this was not merely descriptive, but prescriptive. Genesis 3, verse 20, Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Unquote. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, quote, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, quote, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Unquote. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Life-giving is fundamental to the mission of woman. God is pleased to bring life into this world through her. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 12. Quote, For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Unquote. Life-giving is woman's highest calling and most noble purpose. This is not to say woman's only value is her ability to give life. Many women are single, Many married women have not had their wombs opened by God. Nevertheless, to declare that God created woman's physiology, nature, and being as life-giver is no abuse of women who are childless. It is simply to state what is the doctrine of Scripture and has been obvious to all men everywhere across the ages. Moreover, this blessing of God will continue to be obvious both in Scripture and nature, until our Lord returns. We may strive against it and seek to twist and deform our sisters, daughters, and wives until their lives are a visible effort to deny this truth. 
but nature and nature's God will have the victory. It is this life-giving nature of woman that abortion attacks, turning God's creation and distinctions upside down once more The modern worshiper of Moloch tells woman that God's greatest gift is only a gift if she herself desires it. He repeats the serpent's lies, assuring woman that by denying God's command, she may be like God. Thus, Satan promises the very thing we lose if we believe his lies, namely fertility. Human and child sacrifice have been connected with fertility cults down through history. Moloch may be a separate deity that we know little about, but the name may also simply be an epithet for Baal, footnote, the Canaanite god of fertility. Why would a woman sacrifice her child? Dr. Josephine Quinn of Oxford University's Faculty of Classics suggests that Carthaginians did it because they believe, quote, the good the sacrifice could bring the family or community as a whole outweighed the life of the child, unquote, footnote. Likewise, in 2013, an author in Salon acknowledged the same motivation for abortion, saying, quote, she understands that abortion saves lives not just in the most medically literal way, but in the roads that women who have choice then get to go down, in the possibilities for them and for their families. And I would put the life of a mother over the life of a fetus every single time, even if I still need to acknowledge my conviction that the fetus is indeed a life, a life worth sacrificing, unquote, footnote. Similarly, in 2010, the, quote, urban shaman and ritual expert, unquote, Mama Donna Hennes, wrote an article in HuffPost titled, quote, Harvest Rights, the connection between fertility and sacrifice, unquote. She begins her explanation of the fertility benefits of human sacrifice as follows, quote, at the harvest, one can easily imagine that the earth goddess has offered up her life in the form of the fruits of the land, and that in doing so, she commits the supreme sacrifice. She expends all of her generative energy. It is as if Mother Nature in autumn is in the midst of her menopause, her sacred seed spent. In grateful response, people fed her fresh blood to replenish her powers of procreation, unquote, footnote. She then proceeds to recount unapologetically the cruel, barbaric practices from civilizations around the world that have given themselves to human sacrifice in a quest for fertility, starting with, quote, the Khans of Benegal, who, quote, sacrificed a person for the earth goddess, Tari Penu, in order to ensure healthy crops, unquote. Then moving to, quote, the Arons of Chota Nagpur, who offered human sacrifices to Anna Kuri, who blesses the harvest, and the Lodanaga of Brahmaputra severed the heads, hands, and feet of their victims and planted them in the fields for fertilizer, unquote. She then describes the Aztecs, quote, At the celebration of the broom harvest of the Earth Mother, 
First an older woman and then a young girl were beheaded and their blood spread on fruit, seeds, and grain to guarantee abundance, unquote. After numerous other examples, she concludes with a defense of the practices, quote, With the martyred death of the sacrificial victim, the fertile blood seed like the grain brings life anew to the world, and thus the circle is complete. The death of the old grain, the old sun, the old season, feeds the continuing life of the people. The death of a representative person is then offered in obeisance as repayment of the ultimate death of life. Death feeds, life feeds death. The enduring saga of the eternal cycle of survival. Unquote. So it is today as women seek control over their own fertility, sacrificing some children in order to have others through IVF, or choosing the sacrifice of abortion, supposedly for the sake of the financial benefits that will accrue to her and the greater community as a result. This is nothing less than blood sacrifice to the goddess of fertility. Thus, this beautiful creature, woman, whom God has made life-giver, enticed by the serpent and his willing helpers, turns her womb into a grave. She is convinced her individual destiny, the integrity of her personhood, and the well-being of the community require her to destroy the life God gave her as a blessing to husband, family, and God's green earth. Section Heading God as Sanctifier of Birth God sanctifies and calls us from the womb. Not only does he form and fashion our substance, but from the womb he also establishes our course and sets our feet on his path. Note his words to the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Quote, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Unquote. Through his movements inside his mother, the yet-to-be-born prophet John the Baptist testified to the presence and glory of our yet-to-be-born Savior, Jesus Christ who was then inside the womb of his mother, Mary. Luke chapter 1, verses 41 to 44. Quote, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she cried out with a loud voice and said, quote, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, and how has it happened to me? that the mother of my Lord would come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy, unquote. To the ancient world, the true scandal of Christianity was not so much the divinity of our Lord, but his manhood. It was unthinkable the divine word would enter into physical creation, take on human flesh, and experience the suffering indignity, and weakness of our mortal frame. Yet conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a woman, our Lord sanctified what was considered the indignity of man and woman's corporeal existence. Quote, 
For thou, says he in the Psalms, art he that took me out of the womb. Mark that carefully, he that took me out of the womb, signifying that he was begotten without man being taken from a virgin's womb and flesh. For the manner is different with those who are begotten according to the course of marriage. And from such members he is not ashamed to assume flesh, who is the framer of those very members. But then who tells us this? The Lord says unto Jeremiah, quote, Before I formed you in the belly, I knew you. And before you came forth out of the womb, I sanctified you, unquote. It is God who even now creates the children in the womb, as it is written in Job, quote, Have you not poured me out as milk and curdled me like cheese? You have clothed me with skin and flesh and has knit me together with the bones and sinews, unquote. There is nothing polluted in the human frame except a man defiled this with fornication and adultery. He who formed Adam formed Eve also, and male and female were formed by God's hands. None of the members of the body is formed from the beginning is polluted. Let the mouths of all heretics be stopped who slander their bodies, or rather him who formed them. This is an extended quote from Cyril of Alexandria in his Catechetical Lectures, footnote. That the ineffable God should become the weakest of all creatures, an embryo seeking to attach himself to his mother's womb, opposed all the wisdom of the world. Yet our Lord flew in the face of that wisdom, putting on eternal display the glory of the womb. By his divine presence and occupancy there for nine months at the very inception of his incarnation. Conceived by the Holy Spirit there, he was nourished in the body of the Virgin Mary, dignifying for all time the glorious motherhood of conception, gestation, and birth. Thus, Every woman who presents her womb to God in obedience to his will of fruitfulness follows Blessed Mary in her own submission of her life-givingness to her Creator. Subheading, Children as Gift from the Lord Children are a gift from the Lord. This is the categorical and unequivocal declaration of God. Quote, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Unquote. Psalm 127, verses 3 to 5. Throughout Scripture, then, a barren womb is the occasion of grief. Elkanah's wife, Hannah, is typical in Scripture, which records that it was God who, quote, closed her womb, unquote, and caused her heartache. Quote, when the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. 
It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Unquote. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 4 to 8. Throughout the sacred texts of Scripture, fruitfulness is declared one of God's greatest blessings. The endless statements that fruitfulness is God's blessing never vary. We may say without hesitation that children are still as much a blessing today as they were when God presented Eve to Adam, then Cain and Abel to Eve and Adam. Even the children of evil pagan rulers are given by God's blessing and creative power. Genesis 20, verse 18. Subheading, Murder Incompatible with God's Character. God's decrees flow from his character and are the final standard for all ethics and law. His law from Genesis onward, revealed most directly in the Ten Commandments, explicitly forbids murder. Exodus 20, verse 13. Who could ever conceive of this not including the murder of the unborn child? Is he not also our neighbor? And what is the penalty for murder? Scripture declares murderers will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 John 3, verse 15. Subheading, Man Accountable to God for the Shedding of Blood. Deuteronomy 21, verses 1 to 9, teach that God holds whole communities accountable for the shedding of innocent blood. Quote, If a slain person is found lying in the open country in the land which the Lord your God gives you to possess, and it is not known who has struck him, then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance to the cities which are around the slain one. It shall be that the city which is nearest to the slain man, that is, the elders of that city, shall take a heifer of the herd, which has not been worked and which is not pulled in a yoke, and the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which has not been plowed or sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to serve him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And every dispute and every assault shall be settled by them. All the elders of that city which is nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall answer and say, quote, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it. Forgive your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, O Lord, and do not place the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, unquote. And the blood guiltiness shall be forgiven them. So you shall remove the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, unquote. Notice that even if the people were not guilty of slaying the man nor of standing idly by when the crime was committed, they still bear responsibility before God for the innocent man's blood. They must investigate the death, ensure that justice is done as far as possible, 
make a sacrifice to atone for the blood, and essentially recommit themselves to protecting the innocent. Until they do all these things, God holds them responsible for blood guilt. Subheading, God's Hatred for the Shedding of Blood Alongside God's command not to murder our neighbor and our obligation to deal with the shedding of innocent blood is God's promise of justice to all whose blood is shed. He will vindicate those robbed by the murderer of their lives. His retributive justice will fall on the murderer. Genesis 4.10, Genesis 9.5, and Deuteronomy 19, verse 10. This promise of God's retributive justice against the manslayer is repeated throughout Scripture. From his condemnation of Cain for his fratricide, Genesis 4.10, to his overthrowing of the Canaanites whose bloodshed and child murder caused the land to vomit them out, Leviticus 18, verse 25, to the denunciation of King Manasseh for filling Jerusalem with blood, 2 Kings 21, verse 16, to the final judgment, when God our Maker will judge and condemn the nations, quote, drunk, with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus, unquote, Revelation 17, verse 6. God's retribution against those who shed blood is clear and severe. He has promised he will not hear the prayers of those whose hands are covered in blood, Isaiah 1, verse 15. He has promised to bring retribution on those who practice this evil, but also those who give bloodshed their hearty approval, Romans 1, verse 32. And specifically, he has promised he will set his face against and cut off from his people those who act as if they don't see or know about the shedding of the blood of innocent babies. Quote, this is Leviticus chapter 20, verses 1 to 5. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also say to the sons of Israel, Any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens sojourning in Israel who gives any of his offspring to Moloch shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will also set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given some of his offspring to Moloch so as to defile my sanctuary, and to profane my holy name. If the people of the land, however, should ever disregard that man when he gives any of his offspring to Moloch, so as not to put him to death, then I myself will set my face against that man and against his family, and I will cut off from among their people both him and all those who play the harlot after him by playing the harlot after Moloch, unquote. Not one drop of blood will be forgotten. When Cain killed his brother Abel, God said to Cain, quote, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, unquote, Genesis 4.10. He has promised retribution against those who kill his prophets that he will exact all their blood from Abel down to this present generation. Matthew 23, verse 35. Finally, note particularly 
God's condemnation of the sons of Ammon for their heinous sin. Amos 1, verse 13, quote, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of the sons of Ammon, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders, unquote. Subheading, God's particular hatred for the shedding of the blood of children. Consider the eye-for-eye passage found in Exodus 21, verses 22 to 25. Footnote. And I might add that this footnote is very long and delves extensively into the history of interpretation of this text among Bible scholars. Elsewhere in the law, Punishment was only demanded when actual physical harm was brought upon one of the parties. But here, restitution is required for the harm caused to the child and thereby to the mother, father, and family. Whether, quote, life for life, unquote, refers to mother or child, God opposes even the accidental bloodshed of the unborn. The condemnation of child sacrifice is ubiquitous across the Old Testament. And what's horrible to read is that these condemnations are pronounced alike against the Canaanites and the sons of Israel. Footnote. The people of Israel were surrounded by Canaanite religion and its demon gods worshipped through the sacrifice of the Canaanites' little ones. Moloch worship required that a child be placed in the mouth of the god as a burnt offering. This is a sin so heinous to God that it is the only evil said never to have entered his mind. Jeremiah 32, verse 35. This ancient child sacrifice reached its nadir in Carthage, where the burial ground, Tophet, containing infants in their urns, was excavated first in 1925, then again in 1970. It proved to be, quote, the largest cemetery of sacrifice of humans ever discovered, unquote, containing infants' remains who were sacrificed over the course of six centuries. Archaeologists have estimated that between 400 and 200 B.C., as many as 20,000 urns containing the remains of little children were buried there. Footnote. What was the nature of these child sacrifices? Here is a paraphrase of a description from an ancient Greek writer, Clitarchus, during the 3rd century B.C. Quote, Out of reverence for Cronos, the Greek equivalent of Baal Hammon, the Phoenicians and especially the Carthaginians, whenever they seek to obtain some great favor, vow one of their children, burning it as a sacrifice to the deity, if they are especially eager to gain success. There stands in their midst a bronze statue of Kronos, its hands extended over a bronze brazier, the flames of which engulf the child. When the flames fall upon the body, the limbs contract, and the open mouth seems almost to be laughing, until the contracted body slips quietly into the brazier. Thus it is, that the, quote, grin, unquote, is known as, quote, sardonic, 
and footnote laughter, since they die laughing, footnote. Tertullian, the church father of the late 2nd and early 3rd century A.D., lived in Carthage and wrote, quote, In Africa, infants used to be sacrificed to Saturn, and quite openly, down to the proconsulate of Tiberius, who took the priests themselves and on the very trees of their temple under whose shadow their crimes had been committed, hung them alive like votive offerings on crosses. And the soldiers of my own country are witnesses to it, who served that proconsul in that very task. Yes, and to this day that holy crime persists in secret. Saturn did not spare his own children, so where other people's children were concerned, he naturally persisted in not sparing them, and their own parents offered them to him, were glad to respond, and fondled their children that they might not be sacrificed in tears. And between murder and sacrifice by parents, oh, the difference is great, unquote footnote. Now then, we read with some understanding this most awful judgment by God against his people spoken by his prophet Jeremiah. Quote, Thus says the Lord, Go and buy a potter's earthenware jar and take some of the elders of the people and some of the senior priests. Then go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom, which is by the entrance to the potsherd gate, and Proclaim there the words that I tell you and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to bring a calamity upon this place, at which the ears of everyone that hears of it will tingle. Because they have forsaken me and have made this an alien place and have burned sacrifices in it to other gods, that neither they nor their forefathers nor the kings of Judah had ever known, and because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, a thing which I never commanded or spoke of, nor did it ever enter my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place will no longer be called Tophet, or the valley of Ben-Hinnom, but rather the valley of slaughter. I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place, and I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hand of those who seek their life. And I will give over their carcasses as food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. I will also make this city a desolation and an object of hissing, Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and hiss because of all its disasters. I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters, and they will eat one another's flesh in the siege and in the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their life will distress them. Unquote. Jeremiah 19, verses 1 to 9. We too must tremble at the wrath of God against our own filling of our place with the blood of our own innocence. Now.
have my day.